Well, this morning we are almost at the very end of the letter of James. If you've been with us since January, you know that we've been walking week by week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the letter written by James to early believers with instruction and guidance and wisdom with how to live lives that are faithful and fruitful, lives that are are invested in what matters most. And so James has spoken to just the ways that we are called to live in trial and in tribulation, how we face temptation, how we speak, how we treat one another. James has addressed all these different issues, all these different areas of the Christian life. And this morning, as we're kind of nearing the end of the letter, we're gonna see James come to really a, a core central idea that really is almost necessary to hold on to as we try to apply all the other principles. You see, at the end of chapter four, in the beginning of chapter five, James is going to direct our attention towards essentially where is our hope? Where do we trust or what do we trust in as we live day by day, week by week, year by year? How do we find hope in in the future? And so what James is going to do is he's going to highlight a few of the areas where we are are wrong if we're putting our hope or putting our trust. And then he's going to highlight where our hope and trust actually belongs. And what we'll see essentially in this kind of three-phase movement is this central idea that our peace today, right, the peace that I feel, the certainty and the comfort that I can feel today relies entirely on the promises that God has made. It's not a peace that I find in my ability. It's not a peace that I find in my accomplishment, in my plans, in my possessions. But instead, if I want to be at peace, if I want to find comfort and fulfillment and satisfaction today, as I look towards tomorrow, it means that I need to trust that God is God, that I am not, that God is in control even when life seems chaotic. And the reality is that a lot of us, we, we have this part of us that wants to trust in our own ability, wants to trust in our own strength. This is what James is going to speak against, this natural tendency that we have to trust and lean on our own understanding or to lean on our own strength. And yet there are times, even in our daily lives, that we recognize that we're kind of, the veil is torn back and we realize, you know what, I'm not actually in as much control as I think I am. Like sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking like, I got this, like I know what tomorrow you know, I don't know what today is and I can handle these situations. And sometimes we, we have this illusion of control, but there's a lot of times where then that illusion is just ripped away. My wife and I experience this all the time as parents of small children because little kids are the best way to just remember or be reminded that you really have no control over anything. In, in my life, in their life, I, I send them to school and, you know, I, I can't go and, like, make sure that they, like, say all the right things or that everyone treats them nicely. Like, I can't hover over my kids as they navigate kindergarten or second grade. I mean, I could try and every teacher would not like me. Like, that would just not go well and it wouldn't even work. Like, my kids, even when they're home, they're outside of my control. Circumstances just happen that are outside of my ability to contain. Uh, just a about a week and a half ago, my wife and I were preparing dinner, getting everything ready, end of the day. Kids are off playing in the bedroom, and I hear screaming and crying, which is like standard. Like, that's normal. That's five o'clock in the Smith house. And so uh, they're screaming and crying, but I'm like, it'll be fine. Like, it kind of died down a little bit. So we're like, all right. You know? So we finished getting dinner ready. I'm going to go get the kids and bring them to dinner because, you know, they're probably just hungry. That's why they're screaming and crying. Um, I open the door. They're still screaming and crying. I discover it's not that they're hungry. It's that there's blood everywhere. And uh, no exaggeration. Like, I mean, a little exaggeration, but there is blood like 
all over. They're, they're playing on the bed. So like our older two are like kind of like over in this area. The youngest is over near the wall. There's blood on the bed around him. There's blood on the wall behind him. There's blood on his head, on his hand, on his face. And he's crying. And immediately I go into like defense mode. Like it's like, okay, this is fight or flight. I'll choose fight. And so I send my kids, I send the older kids where I'm like, you need to go to your rooms. And so my daughter, she goes to her room. My older son, it's actually his bedroom already. He's like, I'm in my room. And I'm like, just, okay, go over there. And so, and then I am like, okay, we got to figure out our, our youngest. We got to figure out the four-year-old. He's got blood, something's happening. And so I'm like, we need mom. So I call for my wife. She runs in, she was an ER nurse. And so she's like prepared for these types of situations. This is when she thrives. And so when our kids believe, that's her, that's her number. Number one. So my wife shows up. She comes in. She's like, okay, we got to look at the wounds. So she gets our youngest, our four-year-old. She pulls him out to the kitchen. We start washing off his head to figure out, okay, what's going on with the wound? Because it might not be that bad. Turns out it's not that bad. It's just that heads bleed so much, so much. You'll understand someday if you don't already. But his head is bleeding. It's okay. It's a very small wound. She looks at it though. She's like, well, it's kind of deep right? So it's not, we're not necessarily going to put a band-aid over it. We might, we're thinking like, hey, do we need to go to the urgent care? Like, do we need to, you know, it's the evening. It's like a Friday or something. Like, hey, do we need to take him in? So she takes a picture of the wound, sends it to one of our doctor friends, one of her old coworkers, and he see, looks at it. He messages her back. He's like, you can just super glue it. He's like, and maybe super glue his hands while you're at it, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, old doctors. And so uh, she, my wife's like, okay, we can do this. We can super glue our son's head. And I was like, can we? She's like, I can. I'm like, right. And so I rush off to Home Depot. We don't have any super glue. I rush off to Home Depot. I go get a super glue. I run into one of our wonderful college ministry leaders there who works there. And she's like, what are you working on? I was like, we're gluing our son's head together. And she's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I don't laugh. And she's like, oh, you're serious. I was like, yeah, this is the world. Um, so I buy a super glue. I get home. We, you know, my wife like pinches it together, puts the glue on. And it's okay. Like, he's okay. He's still alive. We're all okay. He still has a glob of super glue on the back of his head. It'll go away with time. It'll be fine. But it's one of those moments. It really is, was one of those moments where as I'm standing there, as my wife, I'm trying to like kind of hold our son's head still. My wife is like gluing it back together. I'm just like, this is wild. And this is out of my control. Like, this was one of those stark Evident moments where I know that resolution of the situation lies entirely outside of my control. And, and we all hit moments like that. Sickness arrives, something falls through, a project falls through, a, a test gets failed, a relationship collapses. We all hit moments where we realize with absolute certainty what we should know at all times, which is that we're never really fully in control. This is part of the human experience. And so James, when he speaks to believers, he says, look, you're not in control. You're gonna think you're in control. You're gonna convince yourself that you can trust in your plans that you have for the next year or for the next day. He's gonna, you're gonna convince yourself that you can rest in, in the control that you have over the possessions or the financial profit that you've gained. He says, but the reality is the only hope you have, the only peace you can find is when you trust not in your ability not in your plans, not in your possessions, but instead in the promises that God has made, that he is faithful, that he is true, that he is merciful, that he's compassionate. This is what we see in James 4 and 5. So if you look with me in James chapter 4, we're starting in verse 13. If you want to turn there in your Bible, go there on your phone. James chapter 4, verse 13 starts like this. 
He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into this or that town and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. So James is speaking to the category of people that make plans, which let's be honest, that's all of us. Everyone makes plans. And even right here at the front end, I want you to know, James isn't saying that plans are wrong. That is not the point he's making. He's not saying that you should just, you know, live for today, don't worry about tomorrow, like don't even think about tomorrow. It's not what he's, it's not what he's saying. In fact, Jesus, he never said you shouldn't think about tomorrow. He says you shouldn't worry about tomorrow. He says worrying never adds a moment to your life, but you can think about it, but you don't worry, you don't fixate on it, you don't obsess over what is coming. Why? Because James says that you don't know about tomorrow. What is your life like? He says, you are but a vapor. You're a puff of smoke that's here for a short time, that appears for a short time and then vanishes. Vapor, literally the Greek term, you're a vapor, you're a water vapor. He says, that's what your life is like. He says, you've made all these plans about what to do over the coming year. He says, but you don't even know about tomorrow. So it's let alone a year from now, right? It's good. Again, it's, it is good and responsible for us to have some sort of idea, right? To prepare in some way for the future. It's, it's, when you sit in a job interview and they ask, where do you see yourself in five years? You don't want to say, whatever, man. You know, like, that's sin. You know, like, that's not how we respond. We can think about where we're headed. There's wisdom in that and being responsible with what we've been given, with the time we've been given. But, but, we have to remember that all of those plans could change, that all those expectations should be held with an open hand because at the end of the day, I don't know what tomorrow brings. We count our lives in years, right? We think about maybe whole seasons of our life. Those were high school years. Those were my college years. We, we count our birthdays, right? We, we think about our lives in kind of these big, grand portions. When scripture talks about our life, when God talks about counting your life, he says you should count the days because the reality is that no day is guaranteed. And so as we are looking ahead, as we're taking an honest view of our life, what James is saying is that your life is so limited, your perspective is limited, and your life itself is so temporary. In the grand scheme of eternity, it's just, it's just gone. It's just gone. And so... Again, it's not wrong to plan, but it's wrong to think that that plan is certain or that plan is somehow in your control. Because he says, that's, that's, a fool. That's, that's foolish. He says, you ought instead to say that, or sorry, in verse 15, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. And it's not that James is saying that this is like a magical phrase that guarantees success. He's saying this is the, this is the perspective you should maintain. It's not a magical phrase, but it is a maintained perspective that God is ultimately in control of where I'm headed, of what I'm doing, of what the future may hold. And so I wanna take those plans before the Lord. He says, but as it is, you are boasting about your arrogant plans and all that boasting is evil. So whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. James seems to be summarizing the teaching like this. He says, you should be taking your plans to the Lord. He says, and your plans themselves might not be evil, right? It's not wrong to think like, I wanna like work in this job or I wanna secure that promotion. I wanna complete this project. I wanna take, you know, get that degree or whatever. He says, those, those aren't wrong. Like those, those plans are, are morally neutral, right? They are amoral. He says, but if you are making these plans and banking on these plans without giving them over to the Lord, 
says that's when you're committing an error. That's when you're guilty of sin because you're allowing the boastful pride of life to direct you rather than your humility before the Lord. And so for us, we need to remember the simple truth that our future is not known. We, we don't. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We, none of us know what tomorrow's gonna bring. And, and we can try to predict it and we'll always fail. We can try to prepare and that's good, right, for certain eventualities, but the reality is it's still an unknown. That's why when my wife and I, we put our kids to bed every evening, you know, I read them a book, sing them a song, tell them a story, something like that, and I, and I will tell them. I'll say, I love you, um, and I'll see you in the morning. Maybe. No, not really. Uh, but that's, so you know, we, don't, we don't take it to that extreme. But we do need to remember that there is an uncertainty to life that we will never know. And we can try to stand and demand answers all we want. We can try to make these models and trust the experts. But the reality is no one knows what tomorrow brings. No one knows. No person has that ability to predict the future. It's why we're so dependent upon the Lord. And even really smart people can look ahead and they still get things wrong. We get stuff wrong all the time. We might be in a relationship right now or a degree path or a career where we, if we were honest with ourselves, if we went back 10 years and asked ourselves, hey, would you expect all these things? We probably wouldn't. There are very few of us that are living the exact life or in the exact situation that we thought we would be in five years ago, one year ago. And really wise people make really silly predictions. I remember I was a history major at A&M and I remember learning not just about history, but about the way that people in times past thought the world would unfold. And it was amazing. One of my favorite instances was Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was really sharp, really smart, business savvy, invented amazing things that revolutionized our modern industrial world. But Thomas Edison still got stuff wrong. He was so pumped in the early 1900s about steel, right? There was like, it was becoming way more common, way more easy to create steel. And it was this amazing super, you know, thing that you could build ships and skyscrapers. And, and steel is really great. And we use it in a lot of stuff. But Thomas Edison was so convinced that steel was the future that he went on record, 1911, did a magazine interview and said that the baby of the 21st century will be rocked in a steel cradle. His father will sit in a steel chair at a steel dining table. He's describing a, you know, a dystopian nightmare. Like imagine just everything is steel and cold and ugh. But then it gets better. He says, and his mother's boudoir will be sumptuously equipped with steel furnishings converted by covening varnishes to the semblance of rosewood, mahogany, or any other wood her ladyship fancies. I love the way he talks. But he was wrong. Like that was wrong. That was a wrong prediction. You probably don't have a, I, I should say, I hope you don't have a steel chair at a steel table in your steel room with your steel baby. Like that is not really how things unfolded. And yet it's easy for us to think that our plans are gonna work out, that our way is best. But the reality is that it simply isn't true, that we're gonna get stuff wrong. And that in fact, some of our plans are like the worst plans ever. That it's not even just that circumstance conspires against us. There's other times that we get further down the road of a plan and we're like, that was a bad plan. And so James is telling believers, he says, there's a better way. Don't hope and trust and put all of your faith and confidence in these faulty, failing, unpredictable plans. He says, put your hope and faith in the Lord. So again, think ahead. Make a, you can make a plan for your life or for your week or for your month, you know, whatever, 
It says, but make sure that you are being humbled before the Lord, that you're acknowledging that he's the one that's in control. It's the wisdom literature of Proverbs, that a person plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. God wants us to make good, wise decisions. He's given us that ability. It's part of being made in his image, is that we have this decision-making ability, and God wants us to use it. But we make these decisions and we make these plans all in the humility and with a humble perspective, a humble heart, bringing those plans before the Lord. And honestly, this is one of the things that I love about being in community. One of the things that I've needed in my life repeatedly is that as I'm making plans and thinking about my future, I need other people to help remind me to take those things to the Lord. I need my wife to speak into that. I need my my close guy friends to speak into that. And I've needed that over and over again throughout the years. To to take these ideas, to take these plans, to take these dreams, to take these aspirations and bring them before the Lord. So often I need someone else kind of nudging me, bumping me forward to do that. It's one of the reasons we talk about community here at Southwood all the time. is because we recognize that we need one another, not just in studying the word, not just in, in learning how to live faithful lives for the Lord's glory, but also We need one another to hold each other accountable to bring our plans before him. And so I would just encourage you, we talk about this all the time, but we have a class that's gonna start up next Sunday during the second service. It's it's like 10.30 to noon, two Sundays in a row called Cultivate. And it's where we talk about how is healthy community formed? Like what's the DNA? How does it function? And what we do in that course over the course of those two weeks is we help you either create that community here at Southwood, or we help you jump into an existing community here at Southwood that lives out those principles. And so you can register for it right now. And I would just encourage you, if you're not in a small group, if you're not a part of a small community here at Southwood, this is crucial. It's crucial for our spiritual formation. It's crucial for our lives as we seek to live according to the Lord's purposes. We help each other trust, not in our plans, but in the Lord's promises. We also help each other remember that our hope shouldn't be found either also, or it should also not be found in our possessions, in our financial gain. This is what James speaks to at the start of chapter five. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted and your clothing has become moth-eaten. So James is launching into this address to just a category of people. So right, the first category was anyone who makes a plan. The second category is anyone who's wealthy, but specifically anyone who has centered their life around wealth, right? So just in the same way, it's not wrong to make plans, but it's wrong, it's it's foolish to put all of your hope hope into those plans you've created. In the same way, it's not wrong to have material wealth, but it's wrong to center your life and put all of your hope in those things. And so to address that, James is kind of, he's adopting this almost prophetic, uh, this voice, where he's speaking almost in past tense to describe future events, right? He's saying, you should weep and cry because of these miseries that are coming on you. They, they weren't actually experiencing misery in the moment, probably, but he's saying that they will come and they're so certain. That's why he says, your riches, they have rotted. Your clothing has been moth-eaten. Again, it's, it's not that they're sitting there with like rotted riches and hold-up hold clothes, but he's saying that he's speaking with that certainty of a prophetic voice. He's saying that it's not going to last. 
He keeps going in verse three. He says, your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and it will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you've hoarded treasure. So James is saying, not only does this rich fail, not only do these riches fail you, he says, but they're gonna consume you. They're gonna eat you alive. They'll consume your flesh like fire, right? Why does he say that? Well, it's because if we are making wealth or possession the focal point of my life, the reality is that it's gonna, that, will, that pursuit will eat me alive. It'll never be enough. It's always a nicer car. There's always a nicer house. There's always a bigger paycheck. There's always a bigger bank account. Like there's always more. And the part of our human nature is that we always desire for that extra. We always want that more. I remember my wife and I, when we first got married, we lived in this teeny tiny little studio apartment. And in our kitchen, we had a sink. Very good. You want those in your kitchens. Um, But we had this teeny tiny sink and it just was, you know, like the handles and a faucet. And that was it. There was no spray nozzle thing, right? And I'd always grown up like with like, well, you always have a little spray nozzle thing that you can pick up and, you know, use to wash your dishes and stuff. We didn't have that. And this was a new air, this was a new experience for me. And as I was, you know, was we were like making this place our own. We, lo- we loved it. Like we loved living there. We're like, oh, it's our little nest and we can like decorate it. Like we didn't because, but we could have. And we were like, this would be so great. And, but there was, that was the one thing is I was like, oh, I wish, I just wish that our sink had a spray nozzle thing. I was like, that's, that's all I need. Like if we, I just hope that one day we'll live in a place, one that's more than like 550 square feet, but also a place that has a spray nozzle in the sink. That's all I need. And so sure enough, we had a couple moves and after two more moves, we were in a place, there's a spray nozzle in the sink. And I was like, wow, we made it. Like, this is it. We were at a little rent house over on Brentwood, and we were like, this is it. Like, this is the pinnacle of existence. Like, we, this is great. I've got a spray nozzle in the sink. But I'll tell you, it didn't take long. It took probably a few weeks of using that beautiful spray nozzle in that sink that I started to think, man, you know, it'd be nice if this kitchen had a little more counter space, right? Because the place we were, the rent house we were in just had like almost no counters, no pantry. And so I was like, gosh, if we could have a few more counter space, a little more counter space, maybe a pantry, be nice if we had a fridge that like you could get water from, right? Like like with a water dispenser, like, oh, that would be, it. then then that'd be said. That's all I need. And so sure enough, we moved a few years later and we bought the house that we're in now. We have a little more counter space. We have a pantry and we have a fridge with a water dispenser. I know, ministry pays, y'all. And, <laughs> and we moved into this house and I was like, this is it, we've arrived. And we've got, still got a spray nozzle. And I thought, this is it. But I'll tell you, it took a few months of being in this brand, you know, this new, well, not new, but new to us home that we live in now. And we we were making it, it was, it was so great. And it took a few months before I was like, gosh, you know, it'd be really cool if we had like enough space in our kitchen for like an island. Like that would be so great. Or man, it sure would be great if like we had our, if our pantry was a little bit bigger or if it had like a light that automatically came on. Oh, when you open the door like that. And it just, it just keeps going. And I've had to catch myself multiple times. We've been in our house now for like nine years. And, and there have been so many instances over those years that we have to catch ourselves. We're like, gosh, what are we doing? Like we're, we're talking about these things that could be bigger, could be better, could be changed. But the reality is we can be content. The Lord has provided incredibly generously to us. And yet there's something within us that just always want a little bit more, a little bit more. And that's never gonna go away. It's part of just our fallen nature. And so James is saying, if you're putting your hope in, your, in these treasures, not only does the treasure rust and rot and spoil, 
He says, but even when you have it, even in that temporary gain moment, he says, it's not gonna be enough. It's gonna consume your flesh. And it's all in these last days. In fact, we know that within 10 years of James writing this letter to the church in Jerusalem, I mean, he sent to believers all, all abroad, but he was in the church in Jerusalem. Within 10 years of him writing this letter, the, Jerusalem got sacked by the Roman Empire. And they took money, they took wealth, they took like valuables, like it, that place got ransacked and it all just went away. And so even the wealthy in Jerusalem at the time, they, they actually were facing very imminent removal of all that wealth. They were about to experience those last days, very real, very, very viscerally. And yet we forget this, right? We convince ourselves like, no, like this will last or that'll be enough. And it's just, it never is. And so James goes on. He says, it's not even just that you fixate on the wealth in your pursuit of it, but he says, you've used it wrongfully. This is what he says in verse four. He says, look, the pay you've held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you. And the cries of the reapers has reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. He says, not only have you pursued wealth at all costs, but now you're using, you're weaponizing that wealth against others. He says, you are withholding pay from your workers who in that time, it was hand to mouth. Like if you didn't get your daily wage, that meant you didn't buy your daily bread. And if you didn't get your daily bread enough times, you starved. And James is saying that you are using your wealth, you're hoarding it in such a way that you're costing people their lives. He says, and you think that their cries don't matter because they they're powerless? He says, but their cries are reaching the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. And God is gonna be their defender. And there will be a day that comes where you pay. There's gonna be a day of judgment and your wealth isn't gonna save you. He says, you've lived indulgently, indulgently and luxuriously, verse five, on the earth. And you fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. James says, you have made your life's goal to amass this wealth, to treat yourself. He says, and it's not gonna pay off. It's not gonna pay off because you fattened your heart for the day of slaughter. It says it's not gonna matter. And those riches, that wealth, those possessions, not only will they not last, but they won't save you. This is with the wisdom of Proverbs. That wealth does not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. That when we stand before the throne of God, that he's not going to applaud us based on our portfolio. He's not applauding us based on those investment opportunities that we seize, that passive income we were generating. God examines our life, not our bank account. And he examines how have you lived according to my will, according to my purposes. And James is saying, Proverbs is saying, the Lord is saying, live according, live the life that is righteous, not the life that is focused on wealth. Again, is it wrong to have possessions? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus never spoke against wealth. He says the love of money, if your life, Paul in 1 Timothy, he says the, the love of money, that's gonna lead you astray. Money itself, it's a neutral, it's a tool. And God can use it in amazing ways. It's not that possessions are wrong, but if we are weaponizing those possessions, if we're making our whole life's pursuit to gain those possessions, that's where we stray. And so for us, it's wherever we are, Right, wherever we are in terms of our financial capacities and our financial state, we can all adopt 
the right mindset of putting people first, right? That's what we're called to in scripture, to place people before our possessions. And so I would just encourage us. I think, you know, a great thing to do from time to time is to just be intentional. I try to do this every once in a while. I try to be intentional. This week is a great week to try it. Be intentional, make a plan to provide for someone in like a special way. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I bought him a Lexus and wrapped it with a bone. We're a Christmas commercial. Like that's not enough to be it. It can be, I'm gonna just get, I, you know, I'm gonna see Stacy at that meeting on Tuesday. I'm gonna bring her like a box of Skittles because like I know she loves Skittles. It could be th- that simple. But if we really stop today, regardless of where we, you know, regardless of the extent, the capacity of our resources, we all have opportunities to put people first, to think, okay, I, I'm gonna make a plan to provide, to use the resources that God has given me to bless someone, to bless someone in my life, to put people above those possessions. And that's what it is. It's a little deposit in that right mindset. It's, the right, it's a little deposit in the right perspective to say that people are more important, that God cares more about the people on this earth and the possessions that we've amassed for ourselves. So he wants us to use those possessions for his purposes. We can do that. We can do that. It's a scalable mission. We can do it in any season, in any situation. We can use our possessions to bless people around us. And in doing so, we honor the Lord. And we, we serve as, as agents of his grace and his glory in our world. And what it does is it also helps us remember that, hey, Possessions aren't the end all be all. My plans are not the ultimate resting place of my hope and dreams. My possessions are not the ultimate resting place of my hopes and my aspirations. Instead, my hope, my trust belongs in the promises of God. That's where peace is found. This is what James says in verse seven. He says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's return. Think of how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the ground and is patient for it until it receives the early and late rains. He's about to use three different examples, farmer, prophet, Job. Every single one of them are patient in different ways, but they're patient, long-tempered. He says the farmer, he's not sitting on his hands waiting, he's still working, but the farmer knows, okay, there is a return, there's a reward in my future based on things that I'm doing now, but there's not gonna be, it's gonna be a payoff later, further down the road. James says, this is how we should live. You also be patient and strengthen your hearts for the Lord's return is near. So if you're pursuing wealth, how do you describe them? He said, you've been fattening your hearts. Conversely, James says, you have an opportunity with patience to strengthen your heart, knowing that the Lord's return is near, that you can await joyously with anticipation, not fearfully. So strengthen your heart with patience. Wait on the Lord. He keeps going. Verse, 10, or verse nine. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged, but see that the judge stands before the gates. Again, he's saying this is part of being patient. You're patient with situations. You're patient with one another. You're not grumbling and complaining about each other because you're being patient. You recognize that the Lord has a plan, that the Lord has a purpose that he's gonna fulfill. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name. Just think about those prophets, those, those different individuals who proclaim the word of the Lord, even at personal cost, even at personal persecution. They stood fast, they endured, they were patient because they knew the Lord had a plan. Verse 11, think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance, that you've seen the Lord's purpose, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He says, we have all these examples. He gives these three different examples of how endurance and patience, it, it, it brings the reward that we want. It brings the satisfaction that we want. It's easy for us to stand 
right, on, on the edge of all the mystery of life, of other people's motives and other people's decisions, of what tomorrow's gonna bring or the next day or the next. And it's, it's tempting for us to wanna stand kind of on the edge, on the precipice of all that mystery, of all that unknown, and to want answers, right, to want clarity. And, and we can make ourselves crazy. We can drive ourselves just absolutely bonkers if we're trying to like get certainty around what's coming or clarity around what's coming or I want answers about why these things are happening or what's gonna happen. And James is telling us that we have an opportunity as children of God to not stand and demand those answers. He says we have an opportunity to stand on that precipice and just be patient, to wait on the Lord. And waiting doesn't always bring answers. It doesn't always bring clarity. It doesn't always tell us why these things happened. Job is a great example. He was suffering. All, all of these possessions in his life had been ripped away. People, things, wealth, riches, all ripped away. He was sick. He was covered in boils. I mean, he was suffering immensely. And when he was undergoing that suffering, he didn't choose, I mean, he had questions and he had concerns and there were conversations he had with friends that were trying to lead him astray. But through all of it, James, he, or sorry, Job, he had this perspective where he said, you know, at the end of the day, I'm gonna have to just trust the Lord. Because that's, because he's like, where else am I gonna put it? I mean, where else could I put my hope? Where else could I put my trust? Where else could I put my faith? It's like, no, nothing else is gonna give me what I need. Like, nothing else is gonna deliver me other than the Lord himself. So, Whatever happens, he's like, I'm gonna have to just trust the Lord. Because you see, even though patience doesn't always bring answers, doesn't always bring clarity, doesn't always bring a quick resolution, what that patience brings is peace. And so even though I'm still looking into the same darkness, the same uncertainty, even though I still don't have the answers that I really want, waiting on the Lord allows me to have peace. And it's not always easy, it's not always fun, it's not always comfortable. But I know that if I'm trusting in the Lord and the promises that he's made, the promises he's faithful to fulfill, then I can experience the peace of God, the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. The peace of Christ that, that is foolishness to the world around me. And yet for me, as a child of God, I know that he won't fail. And I know that even though I might not be, you know, experience redemption from this circumstance, this relationship might not get repaired, these, you know, this money might not ever come back. I know that even though this day may still be difficult, I know that there's a day coming when God is going to make all things right. That, that's the hope of our gospel, right? That Jesus saw us, that God saw us in our, our brokenness and our, our failure and our inability to resolve our own issues. And so he sent Jesus out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live and die the death that we all deserve because of our sin. And when he rose on the third day, he rose not to a big triumphant moment with his disciples. They weren't like waiting like outside the tomb like with their signs like for the third day, like, hey, here he comes. Like that wasn't it. When Jesus rose on the third day, his followers, his closest friends, they were cowering in fear in a locked room. They were not going out. 
because they'd seen their leader crucified, murdered, and they were terrified. They were terrified about what tomorrow would bring. Now, a few of them had gone to the tomb to, to take care of his dead body, and the Lord spoke to them, and eventually, you know, the word spread, and Jesus appeared to them, and that was wonderful. But that actual day when he rose, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uncertainty. In fact, in the days to come, his followers still had fear, uncertainty. Some of them showed up to the mount where he rose and ascended to heaven and gave him the Great Commission. Some of them showed up to that, and they were fearful, and they were uncertain, even as they watched Jesus ascend to the heaven, they're just like, I don't know. Like they doubted. They doubted what tomorrow would bring. So for all of us, man, there's always gonna be this temptation to, to think, oh gosh, if I can't figure it out or if I don't line it up or I don't move these pieces around, if I don't check these boxes, it's all gonna crash. Like that's, and yes, again, we're called to be responsible with the time that we're given, but we have a greater hope. We have a greater future. We have a greater promise that God says, one day I'm bringing redemption for all things. I'm gonna judge all life. I'm gonna bring salvation for all of creation. I'm gonna redeem all of this. And that's the day that we look towards. That's the day that we wait on. That's what the psalmist speaks to in Psalm 27. He says, where would I be if I didn't believe I would experience the Lord's favor in the land of the living? Right? He's facing persecution, he's facing hardship. He says, where would I be? Like, what other hope would I have if I don't trust that at some point I'm gonna be with the Lord in the land of living. And he's not speaking about like redemption tomorrow. He's just saying at some point, I know that the Lord has promised a day of redemption. So I'm gonna rely on the Lord. And so we should be strong and confident. So we should rely on the Lord. This is the charge. This is our hope. This is the goal. That we would stand on the edge of mystery and that we would have the peace of Christ because we trust that God's promises will be fulfilled. That's what we have. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. And so one of the things that we do, I think, to come back to this truth, to center ourselves around this reality, that God's in control and that we are not, God has given us the tool of prayer. And we talk about it, and we're gonna have like even a short series about it after Easter, and, and I love talking about prayer, and it's something that we can always grow in. But I'll tell you, it's, it's one of those tools that I don't think we talk about it enough, that we have this this opportunity that God has given us to talk to him, to lay our concerns before him, to ask for his wisdom, to ask for his direction. And it's not even just something that we do in isolation in our closets, like God has given us prayer to be used as a body. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, every once in a while, what we do here at Southwood is on Sunday mornings, we pray together. And not just corporately, like repeating a prayer from the screen, that's, that's good and helpful too. But, but we take time to actually turn to each other and share how can we pray for one another. And it's a tool that helps us remember that God is in control, that we are not. And so this morning, that's how we're closing. Right? So before we sing one more song, we're gonna take a few minutes to just pray with one another and, and share very briefly one simple thing. Where is it that you need to be patient for the Lord? Right? So the Think, you can think about it for a second. Where is God preparing you to endure, to, to wait on his mercy, to wait on his compassion? Where is it that God is giving you an opportunity to be patient, waiting and relying on him? And you can be as specific about this with your neighbor or as vague as you want. It doesn't matter. 
But my, my only ask, my only request is that you would just grab a few people around you. Could be people that you came with, that's great. Could be someone that you don't know yet, that's awesome. Introduce yourself briefly, share. This is where I have an opportunity to be patient on the Lord. And then, after you briefly share that with one another, pray, pray together. Ask that the Lord would strengthen your endurance. Ask that the Lord would just give you his mercy and peace in that waiting time. Trusting that his promises are faithful and true, that we can trust him, that we can hope in him, that that's where our hope belongs, okay? So grab a few people around you, introduce yourself quickly, share very briefly, where is it you have opportunity to be patient on the Lord, and then let's pray together. I'll wrap us up in a few minutes. Ready, set, go.